ask now in the preaching of your word that you would glorify yourself. And I acknowledge that and realize that your glory is so much different than I expect it to be, that you find glory hanging upon the cross, that that is your enthronement, Lord. Help us to understand what that means. And help us to see the great love that you have for us, that you would go there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the services I get to preach throughout the year, Good Friday is probably the one where I feel most out of my league. I'm not saying this to be self-deprecating or to give off some kind of sense of false humility. Uh, I just am kind of uh, overwhelmed by the enormity of our subject tonight. And I think that's probably right. We probably should be overwhelmed by the enormity of our subject. Um, we could all get together and all of us write theological tomes and write songs uh, all day long and we would not even begin to grasp the full meaning of Christ crucified. But I want to say that tonight we need to try. We need to start somewhere. Um, because this is like probably the most fruitful and life-giving subject or thing that we can study, period. Full stop. The most fruitful thing you can invest your thoughts into, period. Full stop. Um, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, uh, he signaled that he had accomplished something of universal and lasting significance. Um, at this point, I want to commend to you uh, the series of uh, reflections that were released online today. Uh, Pastor Ben, uh, not me, the other Ben, uh, there gave some really good thoughts um, on what that means in the Gospel of John. It is finished. Um, but tonight, I want to take a little bit different tack. Um, and I want to ask, what did Jesus think he was doing when he was up on the cross? What did he think he was there to do? Um, was it a giant accident? Was this, a, as, as Albert Schweitzer said, that he, was, uh, he threw himself onto the wheel of history and was crushed? the biggest catastrophe ever, or was there something else going on? Um, and to get under the skin of this, I want to explore a tiny little quotation, uh, a little detail at the end of John's account that I've passed over a hundred times while reading this. Um, the quote is this, John 19, 36. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. Seems like a minor detail, right? It's not. I want to unpack this reference because it sheds light on how Jesus himself understood what he was doing at Golgotha. Um, and the implications of that for you and for me are immense. They're immense, enormous. So first, background. Um, following John's account of the crucifixion, this is John chapter 18 and 19, um, we see Jesus betrayed by his disciples uh, by his disciple Judas, and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane by the Jewish authorities and a band of Roman soldiers. They bring some thugs with them. Um, and he's abandoned uh, or denied by most of his followers, especially Peter, um, who denies him three times. And then Jesus is whisked through this weird sham trial in the middle of the night that it seems like all the strings have sort of been pulled in advance and everyone's sort of just expecting him to cruise through to the cross. 
Um, and even though Pilate, the Roman governor, finds no substantial reason to punish him, the Jewish authorities desperately want him crucified. So Jesus is thrown between this hateful zeal on the part of his own people and then this sort of mechanical indifference of the empire. Um, it's funny that a lot of us tend to um, many times fall between one of those two poles, hateful zeal or mechanical indifference when we're faced with Christ. Um, but he's delivered over to be crucified, and he carries his cross outside of the city to the place of the skull, Golgotha, where he's crucified along with two other men, one on each side. And as he's dying, he cries out, I thirst, in fulfillment of Psalm 22, um, so that the soldiers take this sponge and they soak it with the cheap wine that soldiers were given. They put it on a hyssop branch and they hold it up to his mouth and he drinks, he receives the wine and says, it is finished. And then he bows his head and gives up his spirit. And this is hours before the feast of Passover is supposed to start, um, which is the biggest, the biggest feast in the entire Jewish year. Um, and the Jews don't want people hanging on the cross uh, during the feast because I guess that dampens the holiday spirit. Um, so they go around and they break the legs of the victims. Right? They want to get them down. But, as we know, Jesus had already died, and so they leave his legs alone. They don't break any of his bones. And John takes note of this little detail and says that this took place so that the scripture might be fulfilled not one of, his lay, one of his bones will be broken. Now, I've been around churches for most of my life, um, and I never quite understood the whole Old Testament quotation thing. Um, am I alone in that camp? No, all right. Uh, I guess I, I always thought that there was like some kind of checklist of prophecies somewhere um, in, in the Old Testament, and uh, the gospel writers are just peppering the narrative uh, with their Old Testament quotes so they can say, yep, Check that box. Yep. Check that box. Yep. Check that box. See, he meets all of the criteria. He's actually the Messiah. That's how I always read that. And I'm like, that is such a bad way to compose a literary narrative. Um, but that's not how it works. There's no way, nowhere in the Bible where it says, you'll know that it's the true Messiah if he doesn't have any broken bones. That's not in the Bible. There's nothing that says that. Um, what this is a reference to, most overtly, is Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. And what it is, is it's, an, it's a set of instructions for how to prepare your family's Passover lamb. And it says, don't break any of the Passover lamb's bones. So, to put it crudely, uh, this is a dinner recipe. What's going on here? Of all the things you could have said, John, why did you say he fulfilled a dinner recipe? This is weird. Uh, and to answer this question, I first want to explain how Old Testament references work in the New Testament, okay? Um, whoever, who here has ever looked something up on Wikipedia? Uh, raise your hand. Okay, uh, keep your hands raised if you've ever looked up the Kardashians on Wikipedia. Be honest. It's okay. Thank you. The rector and I are the only ones who are willing to admit. Um, so as you're learning about the Kardashians, which I'm, I can't commend that to you, but I'm sure you all have, and in your more honest moments, you would raise your hand. Um, you're learning about them, and you see that Kim is married to a man named Kanye West. Again, the rector is the only one who knows. Um, and so you're reading through your Wikipedia article, and you see Kanye West's name is in what color? Anyone know? 
blue. Uh, it's in, it says Kanye West in blue, and um, if you click on it or you put your cursor over it, there's a little underline. You guys know what I'm talking about, and you click on it, and it takes you to Kanye West's Wikipedia page, something which I'm not ashamed to admit I have done. Um, and uh, this is called a hyperlink, okay? Welcome to the 21st century, everyone. Um, and if you want to understand the family dynamics of the Kardashian family, you need to follow the hyperlink and you need to read all about Kanye. Come on, who doesn't want to follow Kanye? Because um, his page and everything that's going on in his life is, is relevant to what's going on in the Kardashian family. Um, you guys got to keep up here. Um, in a similar way, when you're reading the New Testament and you see this Old Testament quote, think of it being in like blue lettering that underlines when you put your cursor over it and it takes you to that place. Uh, that's called, uh, one, one guy who I like to listen to, his name's Tim Mackey, he runs the Bible Project, he calls these hyperlinks within the scripture. We could call them allusions or references if you want to be boring. I like hyperlinks. Um, so if you want to understand the crucifixion story in John, you need to follow that hyperlink not one of his bones will be broken, and read all about the lamb recipe and the events surrounding it in Exodus chapter 12. Make sense? You with me? Okay, so here we go. Uh, the Exodus from Egypt, if you remember, that's the second book of the Bible, is probably the most important uh, epical moment in the entire Hebrew Bible. It sets the pattern for everything else that happens. Um, now, 430 years, God's people were slaves in Egypt in this highly sophisticated, highly affluent, for its day, highly technocratic empire. Um, think like the Mordor of their day, right? Um, Egypt, Mordor didn't inspire Egypt. Egypt inspired Mordor. Okay, let's just get that straight. Um, so as slaves in Egypt, the Hebrew people were forced into hard labor, uh, and they had no rights. They had no freedom of religion. They were told, you will worship the Egyptian gods. They had no buying power. Um, and their children, especially their firstborn sons, were murdered uh, whenever Pharaoh and the rest of the government felt that their population was getting too high. Not a good existence. Um, and the scriptures attest that this particular slavery of God's people, this particular historical situation, um, it was a unique historical circumstance but the scriptures also suggest that on a deeper level, slavery is the human condition. Uh, if you read through the book of Genesis right before, the, the stories of the patriarchs, and then later on you get into uh, the wilderness wanderings of Israel, and then the period of Joshua, and then the period of the judges into the kings, um, you see that human beings have this horrible penchant for making captives uh, of themselves and of one another. If you study world history in any way, if you study 20th century history, you will see that human beings have this penchant for making captives of themselves and one another. We all want to be king. Um, now, in the beginning, God created us with freedom, with dignity, and with authority to be his representatives. Um, but we abuse these privileges, and in this kind of insane, power-hungry quest to dominate, um, we sought power over one another, 
and we sought power over God. And so suddenly, um, we're enslaved to others in all kinds of ways. Anyone who's had an oppressive boss uh, knows this. You know exactly how this feels. Uh, anyone who's been in uh, an emotionally manipulative or abusive relationship knows exactly how this feels. Um, so to, uh, we're, we're slaves to uh, one another, we're slaves to our own sinful nature, and we're slaves to powers beyond um, even our own comprehension. Uh, to put it in the Apostle Paul's categories that he uses in the book of Ephesians, we're slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, so, what's the solution? What Israel needed, and what you and I need, is deliverance. Um, deliverance. This is where the lamb recipe comes in. Okay, God takes it upon himself. You'll find this in the account of the burning bush. Um, you know, Moses meets the Lord, the Lord meets Moses in a burning bush. God takes it on himself to deliver his people and execute judgment on Egypt. He sends Moses to confront Pharaoh, but Pharaoh, of course, is worshiping the gods of Egypt, and he's a little bit stubborn. Um, and so he says, no, you can't go. You're not free. So God sends these nine plagues, each of which confronts the gods of Egypt. And each time Pharaoh refuses to release the Hebrew people. And so finally, the Lord takes this final measure. Exodus eleven four. Moses said to the people, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. And the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. This is judgment, my friends. Comprehensive, total judgment. Um, Egypt was called to a reckoning for their sins, their structural sins, their personal sins, all of it. Um, and in that reckoning, God was going to blot them out. In that day, it's a highly patriarchal society, remember. Um, so if you kill off the firstborn, that's the end of your family line. It's like saying... I'm going to take white out and delete you from the history books. You are no more. You have no more existence as a nation. It's pretty intense. The death of the firstborn means the death of the people. But Israel was given a way through this judgment. This is the lamb recipe. Um, take, uh, each, each man was to take a lamb for their household without blemish, a year old, um, and slaughter it at twilight on Friday, at the very beginning of the Passover. And then they're to take the lamb's blood and put it on the posts of their door and the crossbeam over the door to paint it. And then everyone hides in the house, and they roast the lamb over the fire. They don't boil it, they roast it, and they eat it together, and they eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they let none of it remain there until the morning. They eat it in haste, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff on your head. Why do you, th or your staff in your hand? Why do you think they did that? You gotta be ready to go, man. Oh yeah, and one more thing, Exodus twelve forty six. About that lamb, you shall not break any of its bones. So that night, 
the angel of the Lord went through the land and struck down the firstborn. He executed judgment, the judgment that was deserved. But he passed over the houses marked with the blood of lambs. So, what's going on here? In the hour of judgment, the people of God hid together behind the blood of the lambs. The sacrifice was provided for them, and it was a substitute. It was blood shed in their place. Instead of the firstborn dying, instead of them being blotted out of the history books, the substitute was put forth. And then the lamb was also an identifying marker. Um, it distinguished them from the Egyptians. The blood painted over your doorposts. It said that this is one of the people of God. This one is mine. I claim this one. That's what the blood of the lamb did. And then it also strangely provided sustenance. Remember, these people walked uh, through the Red Sea like the next day. Uh, they didn't sleep for a long time after this. Um, so uh, this would have been the last feast, the last real meal, the last meat that these people probably ate for months. Um, this was a highly significant event. And God instructed the Israelites to observe uh, this feast, to make it a ritual and every single year to participate in it, to get the lamb, to slaughter it at twilight on Friday, to go into your house, paint the blood over the doorposts, read all of the text, gather your family around, and remember that you exist because God delivered you when you had no hope. Israel was to remember that in a sense they died back there in Egypt. The righteous judgment of God was there and it should have fallen on them, but it passed over them. And they live today by sheer mercy. That's the whole point of the Jewish festival of Passover. That's what the lamb recipe is all about. Um, so what does this have to do with Good Friday? Um, every Easter day, it seems that uh, all the cable networks, they just love to play Jesus Christ Superstar. Anybody seen Jesus Christ Superstar? Thank you. All right, I'm not that outmoded. Um, I can't stand Jesus Christ Superstar. Sorry, guys, all you Andrew Lloyd Webber, or Weber fans. Um, the music's catchy, but historically and theologically, it's just garbage. Sorry. Um, there's this moment where, at the end, uh, where Jesus hangs on the cross and he just looks horrified. In, in this is in the musical. Um, he's horrified, and he thinks, he's thinking like, oh no, something terrible happened. This is not the way it was supposed to go. Um, and in that moment, uh, the words of his friend, I guess, in the musical, Judas, are ringing through his head. And it says, and Judas is saying, every time I look at you, I don't understand why you let the things you did get so out of hand. You'd have managed better if you'd had it planned. Andrew Lloyd Webber pictures the cross as a catastrophe, a Jesus who stumbled into this set of gears that just crushed him. If that's the case, we should feel really sad on Good Friday. We should feel that this is the most pathetic thing that we've ever seen. But that's not how it happened. John 7, 1 to 6, Jesus does not is uh, invited to make this public entrance. Uh, his, all of his brothers uh, say, the Feast of Booths is happening. I want, you guys, I want you to go up and make a scene, Jesus. This is your time to shine. 
And what does Jesus say? He says, no, my time has not yet come. Two things are clear from this. One, he has a plan in mind, and two, he will move boldly when the time is right. John is really clear that the cross was not an accident. Jesus was not a victim, but he went by his own authority. John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus goes to the cross on his terms. And when does he do it? When does he go to the cross? Uh, Does he go to the the Feast of Weeks, the Jewish Feast of Weeks? No. Uh, Just some random day happens into Jerusalem. Mm -mm. Uh, The Feast of Pentecost? No. Yom Kippur, oh, here's a good fitting one. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That would be nice. That seems to fit with all this Christianity stuff, right? No, he doesn't go with that. When does he go? The Passover. Jesus of Nazareth went into Jerusalem before the Passover. Do you think that was a coincidence? Do you think that was an accident? Do you think that he didn't know exactly what he was doing? He died on the cross on a Friday afternoon as the Paschal lambs were being gathered into the temple to be slaughtered for the evening feast. He intended to die at this time, in this place, in this way, because he wanted to make it very clear that he is our exodus. He is our deliverance. He is our Passover lamb. You can't say it any louder than that. Not any of his bones were broken. And he offered himself up for you and for me so that the judgment would pass over our head and that we would be delivered. I think when you, when you come to know Christ, there's a time in your life when you can look back and say, I was dead. Um, for me, it was toward the end of high school. Um, I endured a pretty severe bout of depression. Um, and that was cover, coupled with the loss of the faith that I had grown up with. Um, yeah, I was one of those. Um, a total sense of meaninglessness, and then frequent thoughts of taking my own life. Um, and at that time, Christ moved dramatically in my own life. Um, he pulled me out of that hole, and that's a whole other story, not for a sermon. Um, But I do not doubt that without that deliverance, I would have thrown in the towel eventually. I wonder if that's your story, too, at some level. Um, So this time of year, uh, I look around, I look in the faces of my kids, and I look at my wife, um, I look at the people in my life and the love that surrounds me, and I, I remember that I'm not here by my merits or my wisdom or my piety. I'm here because Jesus took my death and he gave me his life. He was and he is my substitute. I was bought with a price. And so were you, friends. That's what Good Friday is about. It's not an accident. It's not not a catastrophe. It's not a man who was unwittingly thrown under the wheel of history and crushed. It's a savior who 
knew you, loved you, came to die so that the judgment would pass over you, who shields you even today by his blood and beckons you to be delivered. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your glory surpasses our expectations. It's gentler. It woos us. It's not heavy-handed. You're loving and gentle and gracious and kind and so self-giving. Lord, would you give us the grace to fall in love with you, to give ourselves to you, to accept you tonight. We thank you for what you've done for us, what you do for us. Would you seal our hearts upon your gospel? In your name we pray. Amen.